It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. 30 years ago, journalist Bill McKibben wrote about the dangers of global warming in his book, The End of Nature. Since then, little has been done to address the problem. Communities are running out of water, and weather events are getting worse. Heat waves are killing people, violent storms are destroying neighborhoods, and wildfires have engulfed entire towns. The world is now in violent and chaotic flux. This is by far the biggest thing that human beings have ever done. It's now so obvious climate change that it is in the in someplace around the world in the headlines every day. Today, McKibben explains why we can't wait any longer to save the planet. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. In 2015, Bill McKibben traveled to an ExxonMobil gas station in Burlington, Vermont, not far from his home. ExxonMobil is a sponsor of the Aspen Ideas Festival. McKibben pulled out a protest sign and called attention to recent news reports. The reports revealed the company knew about negative effects from climate change decades earlier. Soon, the press arrived, and the police. McKibben was arrested and word spread about his demonstration. He says, had we known the science fossil fuel companies knew, we wouldn't be in as deep a mess as we are today. McKibben started 350.org, a climate change movement that has organized rallies around the world. He believes deeply in the power of protest. The great invention of the 20th century was not the nuclear bomb or the genome. The great invention was probably the nonviolent social movement. On the Aspen Ideas stage, he describes how, through the power of dissent, we can change the fate of the planet. He spoke on June 26, 2019, a few months ahead of the global climate strike. The strike, which is led by young people, will happen September 20th, with 2,500 events scheduled across 150 countries. Here's McKibben. It's good to be here with you tonight. The place I wish I really was tonight was uh, on the steps of the Democratic National Committee in Washington. The Sunrise Movement, the kids who started the Green New Deal thing, have been occupying the steps of the DNC for the last two days to demand a, a debate on climate change. And they're there having a big debate watch party tonight with everybody's got their cell phones out and listening carefully and things. And that's really the place that's you know shaping the future right now or one of them. And I'll talk about that, about the sort of remarkable climate moment that we're in and the real possibilities of it. Um, but let's start with the hard stuff and get through it and, and on. The reason that we're in a climate moment, above all, is because we've done so little to head off the greatest crisis that we've ever been faced with. Um, we're in a climate moment now, talking about the Green New Deal, having climate debates, all of that because we paid no attention when scientists gave us the warning they gave us 30 years ago. I wrote the first book about all this back then in 1989, 30 years ago this year. And at the time, we were offering warnings about what was going to happen if we didn't do what scientists had told us we needed to do. And now we're at the point of offering bulletins about all the things that are happening around the world. So, you know, last week in India, 180 people in Bihar state died 
uh, because it just got too hot. It was 124, 25 degrees day after day. Uh, last week, Chennai, a city of about 8 million, uh, uh, used to be called Madras. Uh, Chennai ran out of water. Their reservoirs dried up. There's no more drinking water. Uh, they've closed the hotels and the restaurants. Most businesses have shut down. They're hoping that the monsoon comes sometime in the next little while and gives them at least a little drinking water. But that's, you know, the year before that, it was Cape Town that came within a week of losing its water supply. And the year before that, it was Sao Paulo. Today, tomorrow in France, they're probably going to set the all-time high temperature record. For France, it's supposed to go to about 112 degrees um, in parts of France. Really, the more horrible heat at the moment is what's happening in the far north. Uh, uh, the heat up along the Arctic Ocean has been 80 degrees day after day after day in much of Siberia. Uh, Arctic sea ice is at a record low, and you probably saw pictures a week ago of Greenland melting at a pace we've never seen before for this time of year. In fact, let me show you a couple of pictures from Greenland just to kind of try and make this point. I was in Greenland last summer organizing a, a art project that I'll show you here in a minute. Uh, but Greenland is a stunning place. It's the biggest storehouse of ice, obviously, in our hemisphere. If all that ice melts, the sea level would go up about 20 feet from Greenland alone. And it is spectacular to look at, and it's also incredibly sobering to see it melting and melting fast. I don't know if you can quite make that out. That's If you look at the front of that ship there on the way to this ice sheet that we were going to, you can see clear open water. But if you look at the chart above the captain's wheel, the icon for our boat is clearly about a mile inland over solid land. And I pointed this out to the captain with some trepidation. And the captain said, no, no, don't worry. The chart's five years old. Five years ago, it was ice frozen as far as you could see, but it's all melted now. We were going out there because I wanted these two young women to have the kind of right platform. They're both poets. The one on the left is from the Marshall Islands. Her name is Kathy Jetnil Kajiner. On the right is a young woman named Aka Niviana, a Greenlandic native. And, and they performed a poem that has now been seen by millions of people on YouTube. Um, Kathy's an old friend, and I wanted to get her up there because she's a spectacular poet, and she's standing on the ice that when it melts will drown her home. The highest point in the Marshall Islands is about a meter above sea level. They're already having high tides that just burst through people's living rooms. The cemeteries are, you know, coming undone on and on and on. And so it was an amazing poem, full of a kind of fury, but also full of a fair amount of generosity, um, um, a a willingness to fight. And fight we obviously need to do. This picture I shot with my cell phone from the front of the helicopter, we'd been changing some instruments in one of these, changing the batteries in some of these instruments that scientists use to monitor the recision of the glaciers and and so then we were taking off to go back to base and and you'll see in a minute why I'm showing you this um, suffice it to say that the world is now in violent and chaotic flux this is by far the biggest thing that human beings have ever done 
it's now so obvious climate change that it is in the in some place around the world in the headlines every day. Sometimes it's in places with so many cameras that we can't avoid seeing it. So everybody got to watch last autumn when a California city literally called paradise literally turned into hell inside half an hour. And especially for those of us who live in rural places, those pictures really stuck because everybody could imagine trying to flee down a two-lane road while the trees on either side burned. Colorado has had enough experience with forest fires to be uh, sensitive to that. Sometimes they're in places with very few cameras. Mozambique this year had the two biggest cyclones in history back-to-back. The second one dropped six and a half feet of water. Watch that chunk of ice out at the furthest part. It's 120 feet high, so a 12-story building, so bigger than anything in Aspen. Um, And we just happened to be going over at the moment that it let loose. Those waves are 50, 60 feet high. The pilot was a little wary because you could feel the updraft of air, but I I convinced him to circle it because it had such a magnificent, savage beauty. And also because it's a reminder that that's what's happening now every second of every minute of every hour of every day uh, 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 every time it does you know the ocean goes up some fraction of a millimeter our candidates in Miami tonight are debating and the fact that they're debating anything else in a sense in Miami is, is seems almost crazy um, given the surroundings um, but that sticks with me and, 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 and I hope with you scariest part of where we are with climate change is that we're still very much near the beginning of this story, not the end. We've raised the temperature of the earth about one degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. Even if all the countries in the world kept the promises that they'd made at the Paris Climate Accords, the temperature of the earth would still go up three, three and a half degrees Celsius, seven degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. Um, If that happens, we can't have a world anything like the ones we're used to having. Uh, Civilizations can't, of of the size and scale that we have, won't work on that kind of planet. And of course, not all the countries in the world are keeping even those modest promises they made in Paris. Our country, the country that put more carbon into the atmosphere than any other, has decided it's not even going to participate in the only international effort to do anything about climate change, something that should be a source of abiding shame to us. The glimmer of real hope is that the one part of our society that did its job over the last 30 years was the engineers, and they have managed with real success to bring down the price of solar panel and wind turbine to the point where this is the cheapest way to generate power now around the world. The price of a solar panel dropped 90% in the last decade. That's the thing that gives us an opening. If we really wanted to, if we really pushed, if we really made it the priority of our civilization, then we have the means that we need now to move not fast enough to stop global warming. That's no longer one of the possibilities, but fast enough perhaps to limit it to the point where we still could have civilization, something like the ones we're used to having. 
We're not moving anything like that at the moment. We're moving much, much, much too slowly. Emissions around the world are continuing to rise. In fact, the most important scientific instrument on the planet, beyond any doubt, is the CO2 register on the side of the volcano at Mauna Loa that American scientists installed in 1959 from Scripps Institute of Oceanography and uh, Charles Keeling. And, and that's been recording the CO2 every year since 1959. You've seen that picture of the Keeling curve, so-called, going up. It always reaches its maximum for the year on about the 30th, 31st of May because that's right about the point when there's enough vegetation growing in the northern hemisphere to temporarily suck up some of that carbon. This year, on May 31st, it stood at 414.87 parts per million, call it 415 parts per million, up 3.5 parts per million from the year before, the second largest increase on record. Uh, it's spiraling out of control. It seems to indicate that continuing rise, not only that we're burning more coal and gas and oil, but also that some of the Earth's physical systems, forests and oceans, are becoming less efficient at sucking up excess carbon in the atmosphere. We've begun to undermine the coping ability of the planet. This is the highest that it's been, we think, 15 million years, something like that, i.e. long before the beginning of primate evolution. We're on a completely unprecedented voyage, all of us, into this future, into a world uh, that every signal it sends now is more dire than the one before. If you read the scientific literature, the most common phrase one hears is faster than expected. And indeed, that's the case. When I was writing The End of Nature 30 years ago, we thought that the things we're seeing now, 70% of the summer sea ice gone in the Arctic, or uh, the ocean's 30% more acidic, or the coral reefs dead across vast swaths of the planet, that that would happen in 2080 or 2150 or somewhat farther into the future. But it's happening now, and it means that the time that we have to exert any real leverage over the outcome is enormously small. The thing never to forget about climate change is that it is a timed test, the first time test really that humans have run up against. We're used to political problems that we can work on, and if we don't make progress on, we can come back to a while later. So we do everything we can to try and build a decent health care system, and then Trump comes along and knocks it down, and that's bad. A lot of people will suffer, are suffering, are going bankrupt, are not able to pay for their insulin, whatever it is, and that's terrible. But it doesn't mean that when common sense reasserts itself at some point, we won't be able to pick up this promise and, and, and go forward. Sooner or later, one imagines that America will do what every other industrialized country did and have a decent health care system that takes care of people. Climate change isn't like that. If we don't solve it soon, we don't solve it because we go past a series of tipping points beyond which we will no longer have any control. No one has a plan for refreezing the Arctic once it's melted. Dr. King 
My particular hero used to end talks by quoting from the Massachusetts abolitionist Theodore Parker. He'd say, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This may take a while, but we're going to win. The arc of the physical universe is short, and it bends toward heat. If we don't win soon, then we don't win at all. And that's why, for me, these questions have become so urgent and why I've spent, well, why my life sort of changed over those 30 years from being a writer into being the best approximation of an activist I can be. You can tell that I'm not an orator by nature uh, or anything like it, but with the planet well outside its comfort zone, I've come to figure out how to get somewhat outside mine And I hope that I can convince some of you to do likewise in the course of the evening. I'm going to do that first by just telling the truth as I see it and and in this place. One of the reasons that I was willing to come to Aspen this year after not having come for quite a while was when I found out that Exxon was one of the sponsors of this gathering. And so I thought it was important to, at the very least, tell the story of how we got where we are so that we don't repeat the same set of mistakes that we've been making for those decades. At the beginning, in 1989, say, or 1988, when Jim Hansen first testified before Congress, it looked like we might be ready to make some real progress as a society. The Republican president at the time, George H.W. Bush, said forthrightly, we will fight the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. So pretty good line, and, and there you were. Um, we've gone over 30 years to the point where the current Republican occupant of the White House believes that climate change was a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, a point of view so odd that if you were sitting on a public bus and the person next to you was muttering it, you would get up and change seats. Okay? But the question of how we got from one of those places to the other is a really important story. And it's an incredibly odd story because over that 30 years, the science had become incredibly firm. We understood pretty early on by 1995 or so everything that we needed to know. There was a robust scientific consensus. So... What happened? What happened, we know now from terrific investigative reporting over the last four or five years, from places like uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning website uh, uh, Inside Climate News or from the LA Times. What these guys did with really painstaking investigation in archives with whistleblowers, so on and so forth, was demonstrate that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change in the early 1980s. If you think about it now, it makes great sense. I mean, Exxon, for instance, was then the largest company in the world. It had terrific scientists on staff. Its product was carbon. Of course, they were going to understand how it worked, and they set out to do so. And they did so incredibly well. The graphs that their scientists were producing for their executives showed with now we understand uncanny accuracy how much the temperature was going to go up and what the level of carbon in the atmosphere was going to be. They were told in no, so, no uncertain terms what would happen, and the executives were smart enough to believe the scientists that they employed. 
I mean, companies began doing things like building all the drill rigs that they built to compensate for the rise in sea level that they knew was in the offing. What they didn't do, of course, was tell any of the rest of us. They published a few papers in scientific journals, but then they spent billions of dollars building the architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us locked for 30 years in an utterly sterile debate about whether or not global warming was real, a debate that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just that one of them was willing to lie. And that lie turns out to have been the most consequential lie, perhaps in human history, because it cost us those crucial 30 years when we should have been absolutely hard at work, instead engaged in this charade. And, and it's been a very intense charade. I mean, at the highest levels of corporate life, the CEO of Exxon in 1997, right at the moment when the world was trying to reach the first agreement in Kyoto, uh, gave an incredibly memorable speech to the World Petroleum Congress in Beijing at a time when China was deciding sort of what path it would follow. And what he told them was the planet was cooling and that in any event, it would make no difference whether we started now or in 25 years to try and deal with climate change. The precise opposite of what we know to be the truth. Those 25 years turn out to have been incredibly precious and that we squandered them is one of the great sadnesses. It may not surprise you that that CEO of Exxon, having retired from Exxon, is now the lead director on the board of directors at J.P. Morgan Chase, which in turn is the single biggest source of funds for the fossil fuel industry around the world, pouring hundred and some billion dollars every year into the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. When I, I will continue to confess my biases here, just so you're clear, okay, where I stand. When I read those first stories in Inside Climate News and the LA Times, I reacted strongly to them. I knew that they were incredibly important part of this history that was being told. Part of the reason I reacted to them, I think, so much was because I knew it was sort of part of my history being told, that that one of the reasons I'd had to spend 25 years of my life engaged in this fruitless debate was what we were now understanding had been the role of these companies. So... But I also knew, as a journalist, that we live in an age when the most incredible stories in the world uh, uh, pop up and you know, eight hours later are replaced by something else, and we just go on. And so the fact that somebody has credibly accused the President of the United States of raping them uh, uh, two days later has passed by, and we're on to the next thing. And, I very much did not want this to be passed over in this way, and I couldn't think at all what to do um, um, beyond you know, the usual tweeting and things. But I finally decided that I, would, I, I live in the woods in Vermont. Um, so I went up to our big city in Vermont, Burlington, which only has 50,000 people. So it's not that big, but it's what we got. And, um, and, and made a sign and... Uh, sat down in front of the Exxon station. Um, um, and and there's just enough reporters in Vermont that they, you know, within a few minutes knew I was there. And a few minutes later, the police knew I was there and led me away. 
Um, and, and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, I, my hope was that it would draw a little attention. And in fact, I had a call from a friend at Facebook that afternoon who said, you know, for, for half an hour it was the top trending until it, was, until it was replaced by a video of a corgi barking at a miniature pumpkin. But um, 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 uh, it, it and other efforts like it may have played some role in just raising the profile of this enough that you know, by now, the New York Attorney General and the Massachusetts Attorney General are uh, uh, taken Exxon to court. As Dan pointed out, cities like New York and San Francisco are suing now the oil majors. Uh, uh, it's become enough of a story that at the very least we understand what happened. And understanding what happened seems to me incredibly important, if only for our kind of self-respect, and also for figuring out, going forward, who to pay attention to, who to trust, and who not in these sagas. It's not just a moral question. It's an eminently practical one. 25 or 30 years ago, there were all sorts of things we could have done that would not have been very hard to deal with climate change. 25 or 30 years ago, a modest price on carbon would have been enough to steer the ocean liner that is the global economy three or four degrees to starboard, and 30 years later, we would have sailed into a different ocean. Instead, at the urging of the fossil fuel industry, we went absolutely straight ahead, in fact, increased the speed at which we were going. We've emitted more carbon dioxide since 1989 than in all of history before it. Okay? So that's been the price of, that's been the fossil fuels willing, industry's willingness to break the planet in order to maintain its business model has been the dominant part of this story for the last 30 years. There have been other parts, but that's been key. And abhorrent as it is, it's equally abhorrent that the industry continues to insist even now, even now that it acknowledges the existence and reality of climate change, continues to exist to, to insist on doing what it's always been doing. That is, it continues to insist on spending billions of dollars exploring for new sources of oil around the world, even though we already have in our reserves five times more fossil fuel than any scientist thinks we could safely burn and stay below the targets that we've set at Paris. Um, uh, my colleague George Monbiot at uh, The Guardian today wrote a great column about Shell, uh, which he referred to it, I believe, as a planetary death machine, um, um, for precisely that reason, pointing out that its uh, you know, investments now in renewable energy are tiny compared to the amount of money it continues to pour into the task of going around the world trying to find yet more carbon to burn. Viewed in any moral or practical lens, it's a great... It's a great and deep and abiding shame. And it really should cause us at gatherings like this one to think pretty hard about where it is that we're looking for our ideas about the future, uh, whose ideas count, and, and whether or not 
people have earned the right to have their ideas count based on their actions in the past. Um, I, I, I think that that's actually, well, I, I leave it there for you all to think about it. And I will add that this problem is by no means confined to the oil companies. I was making reference to uh, Chase earlier. Uh, they spend more money on the fossil fuel industry than the fossil fuel industry does. Their loans are enormous. Uh, the head of BlackRock was here earlier uh, uh, to help launch the Ideas Festival. BlackRock owns more, a larger share of the world's coal and gas and oil than any other institution on earth. They're the absolute biggest. The insurance industry, the industry, the part of our economy that we ask to analyze risk for us, has done a good job of analyzing risk. One company after another has pointed out in great detail the danger that we're headed to with climate change. But they continue to pour huge amounts of money into it, and they continue to underwrite for money uh, the exact projects that now get us deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble with each passing year. You can't build a new pipeline unless you can get an insurance company to underwrite it, but they do it knowing full well precisely what they're involved in. So it is a deep, deep conundrum. And the only answer to that conundrum that I've been able to come up with over time is to try and build some sort of power big enough to counterbalance the incredible power of the fossil fuel industry and the financial industry that backs it. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Stuart Brand is many things a writer, biologist, environmentalist, and tech visionary. His latest focus is de-extinction, or rewilding the world. With an organization he co-founded called Revive and Restore, he and his team are using new techniques of genetic rescue for endangered and extinct species. There are some species that are, that are no longer in the wild. They're basically in captive breeding, or they're, uh, uh, they're completely gone like extinct species. And they've left a real gap behind them. And to refill those gaps will re-enrich uh, the whole conservation world. Hear more about Brand's efforts to revive extinct species in our episode, Reversing Extinction. Find it in the Aspen Ideas To Go archive in your favorite podcast player. Aspen Ideas To Go can also be heard on NPR One and Sirius XM's Insight Channel. Let's get back to our featured presentation. Here's Bill McKibben. In the course of history, human history, there are enough moments when people have decided that they will band together to give us some hope that it is possible to do. In fact, for my money, the great invention of the 20th century was not the nuclear bomb or the genome. The great invention was probably the nonviolent social movement. Uh, the work that the suffragettes and that Gandhi and that Dr. King and that a million others did around the world to try and figure out how we could build structures that allowed the small and many to challenge the mighty and the few is, well, that's the one thing we have perhaps going for us. 
And, and so we've spent the last decade or two trying to build a foundation for that movement. There was none when we started. Uh, 350.org, this group that I helped began, started a decade ago. And at the start, it was myself and seven undergraduates at Middlebury College in Vermont, where I teach. So there were seven students. There were seven continents. Each one took one. That was our, the guy who took the Antarctic had to take the Internet. We set out around the world to find people like ourselves. There is not everywhere someone called an environmentalist, but there's everywhere someone interested in public health or hunger or women's rights or war and peace or all the things you're not going to have on a degrading planet. And they were our allies. And, man, they stepped up. Ten years ago in autumn of 2009, we did our first big global day of action. We just asked people all around the world to rally, and they did. Often for the first time and wherever they were, there were 5,200 demonstrations in 181 countries. CNN called it the most widespread day of political protest in the planet's history. And the pictures were beautiful. And one of the things that the pictures showed me, because people were uploading these images from these 5,200 demonstrations, they were coming in at the rate of 10 a minute sometimes all weekend. One of the first things that I saw in them was that, you know, I'd always been told that environmentalism was something that rich white people did, that it was a kind of Aspenish kind of enterprise, you know, um, and that if you were poor and you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, you wouldn't be an environmentalist. And it took 20 minutes of looking at these pictures to realize what nonsense that was, that almost everyone we were working with around the world was poor and black and brown and Asian and young, because that's what almost everybody around the world is, you know. And what do you know? They're exactly as interested in the future, maybe more so because the future bears down really hard on you in a lot of these places. One of the iron laws of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the earlier and the harder you suffer. So it was beautiful to see, beautiful to see people. I mean, that's a poignant picture now because Chennai is out of water as of tonight. Okay, I mean, those guys are spending tonight trying to figure out how to get enough water to, so they can cook or wash or whatever it is. But people brought wit to the uh, uh, enterprise, and they brought the first big involvement of religious communities all around the world, and they brought their most existential problems. That's the Student Government Association of the Maldives. They're meeting in the lagoon because the highest point in the Maldives is a couple of meters above sea level. People have lived there for 5,000 years. They're probably not going to make it through the century, but they're going to try. They're part of this fight. I don't know. I could show you... Pictures all day and night. Some of them ended up that first day in a file marked 350 adorable. And they were adorable. And they were also super hard to look at. I mean, those girls are going to be refugees. And not from something they did, from something we did and something Exxon did, you know. And, and so we've gone on. We think we've organized about 20,000 demonstrations around the world, every country except North Korea. And it's been a great educational effort, and we would love to keep at it. Uh, and if we had 40 or 50 years to solve this problem, this kind of ongoing mass education would be the best way to do it. Because that's, you know, humans change best when they change gradually and slowly. It's easier for us, for our societies, for our economies. But, of course, our problem is we don't have 50 years anymore. We should have started 30 years ago, and since we didn't, we're mile behind. I'll just tell you about that one because I like it. That's one of those uh, 
now dry riverbeds in the southwest, and we'd borrowed a satellite, and when it came over, two or 3,000 people from the Santa Fe Art Institute put blue blankets up overhead just for a second to bring the river back to life. So poignant and powerful. But without the necessary time for this kind of educational work alone, we've gone on to confrontational work. And these are pictures from the start of the fight against the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, when we started, people said there was no chance. Big Oil never lost a fight like this. Really, never even had a fight uh, you know, of any kind. Uh, when National Journal polled its 300 energy insiders in August of 2011, uh, 93% said that uh, TransCanada would have its permit for the pipeline by the end of 2011. Instead, more people went to jail than had gone to jail about anything in this country in a very long time. And it became the kind of signal environmental issue for a, uh, four or five years. And eventually, President Obama said, no, we won't build it. Uh, President Trump immediately, the first day on taking office, signed the papers to say, we'll build it again. He apparently believes um, that it, in fact, has been built because he keeps describing his uh, pipeline that he's built. Um, but as it turns out, it actually hasn't. Uh, uh, TransCanada held a press conference again this year, a few weeks ago, to say two things. One, that they were changing their name to TC Energy, which always strikes me as a good sign, Philip Morris becoming whatever they became, you know, um, um, and to say that they were delaying again for yet another year building this pipeline because there were just too many people in the way. Now, the good news about that is that it kept 800,000 barrels a day of the dirtiest oil on earth underground. But the really good news about it is that it caused people all over the country and all over the world to see that they could stand up to these kind of things. And now no one builds a pipeline for free. No one puts up a coal mine or a frack well without serious opposition. We don't win all of them, though we win a surprising number of them. Even when we merely delay them for a little while, it's a huge help because each month that passes, the engineers bring down the price of a solar panel another percent or two. And that makes the spreadsheet that much worse and puts the pressure on that much harder. They know, the fossil fuel industry, that they have to lock in as much infrastructure as they can now, and if they can get it in the ground, then they'll use it for the next 40 or 50 years, uh, long past the kind of point of no return. So our job is to try and keep it out. Whether we can do this in time, who knows? I mean, already we see the most incredible impacts and people rallying around them around the world. Some places they're truly horrible, um, drought and Places like Kenya, some places, they're a little less. But, you know, even for those of us who love um, the passage of the seasons, uh, it's traumatic to watch winter begin to kind of waver at our latitude. It is for me, anyway. Um, um, the, the resistance is beautiful to see. And it takes so many forms and in so many places... Um, always strongest among those who have, I mean, look at those people. They live in the part of Pakistan that in 2010 had the biggest flood since Noah. Uh, the Indus swelled to the point they had the kind of rain you can only have on a globally warmed planet since warm air holds more water vapor than cold. 25% of the country was covered by water. Uh, uh, 20 million people were out of their homes. I mean, that's like everybody between Boston and Baltimore out of their homes, you know. 
And if you look at them, you know that they did not cause the problem from which they're suffering. In fact, in fact, one of the things that's been most important and significant is to try and help people always understand who does cause the problem. This picture is from a town in Haiti called Lake Kay on the southwestern peninsula, and I show it to you for two reasons. I mean, it's about the smallest demonstration we, I think we ever did. Uh, uh, but Lake Kay, the year after that, was basically wiped off the map by the strongest hurricane ever to hit that part of the world. It destroyed 80% of the buildings in that city. I have no idea if those kids are still alive. The sign, the other reason I show it to you is just because what those signs said, that kids are holding those signs that say, your actions affect me which is absolutely right, and just not the other way around. There's nothing anybody in Haiti can do to solve this problem. They don't use any fossil fuel now, so they can't use less. They can't come to the White House and demonstrate, because we don't let Haitians into the country for much of anything, certainly not that. They can't divest their uh, stock portfolios of Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, and BP, I guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you, that there's more stock portfolios in the size of the stock portfolio in the 400 yards around this hotel exceeds the entire uh, 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 holdings of everybody in Haiti. Um, So that's, I mean... Our job, having caused the problem, is to be in the lead of trying to fix it. And we are. You know, we're, seeing, we're seeing that start to happen. The divestment fight has become the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. We're now closing in on $9 trillion worth of endowments and portfolios that have sold their stock in part or in whole in the fossil fuel industry. And it's having a huge effect. Shell described it in their annual report last year as a material risk to their business. The coal industry executives were complaining in a long article in Politico two weeks ago that they can no longer find capital to expand. There's just too many funds that have now put them off limits. So it's beginning to make real progress. And the resistance of all kinds is making real progress. It's beautiful to see. It's been particularly beautiful this year because we've watched the rise of the fight for the Green New Deal young people entirely in this group, the Sunrise Movement. They all worked on fossil fuel divestment when they were in college. When they got out of college, they wanted to keep fighting. So they formed this Sunrise Movement and they drew up this legislation and they found Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and got her on the side. And it's now changing the way that we think about these problems in a huge way. It's the first piece of legislation that's on a scale commensurate with the problem it's trying to solve. It's the thing that's driving the debate in Miami tonight when it gets to climate change. You know, uh, We've watched Extinction Rebellion in London close down the city for, for a week. And in the end of that uh, remarkable protest, the Tory government in the UK passed a law saying that we were declaring the first national climate emergency. Uh, uh, we've seen most beautifully, perhaps, Greta Thunberg uh, 10 months ago in Sweden uh, sit down on the steps of the parliament and say, I'm not going to go to school. If you can't prepare the future for me, I 
too much to ask me to spend all my life preparing myself for that future. And that spread with enormous speed around Europe um, um, and around uh, now around the world. When they did their big last big school strike, 1.4 million kids were out of school. It was probably the biggest day of climate action in history. <clears throat> and we need to... We need to top it and top it by a lot. On September 20th, Greta and her crew asked if adults would now join in these strikes. And so on September 20th, a bunch of us are trying to organize that, and we just need everybody to pitch in. If you have a business, you need to close it. You need to organize with your fellow employees to walk out for the day and go join in some one of these rallies or in some project. It's going to be a big day, and there will be more of them in the next few years because we need very badly to keep building this resistance as fast as we can. It's the motor that allows us to imagine things like a Green New Deal, like a price on carbon, like any of the things that we might possibly achieve legislatively. They depend entirely on managing to shift the zeitgeist enough. And we we have moments that make us incredibly... Optimistic. We had one today. Our crew at 350 Africa wrote this morning to say that after three or four years of fighting in the uh, uh, city of Lamu in Kenya, uh, the plans for a giant coal-fired power plant had been beaten down. It was a miracle. No one thought that this would happen, but people fought with incredible vigor. And something like that happens now every day. It's not yet enough, but it is showing what's possible. Let me give you just a couple of images to stay in your mind as I stop and we go to questions and things. These these are our friends, best climate organizers I know, 350.org in the South Pacific. They call themselves the Pacific Climate Warriors. They're on those islands, Vanuatu, Tuvalu, the Marshalls, Micronesia, the Solomons, all of which are way too low to the water and in desperate trouble. But their slogan is, we're not drowning, we're fighting. And two or three summers ago, the way they fought was to build a traditional canoe on each island and then take them to Newcastle in Australia, which is the biggest coal port in the world. And for a day, they managed to block the biggest ore ships on the planet, uh, kept them in the harbor um, um, with these canoes and things. And it was beautiful and effective. Uh, It shamed the Australians some. In fact, within a month, the city council of that city, Newcastle, biggest coal port in the world, voted to divest their pension fund from fossil fuel. So it was a good (laughs) sign. But the reason I show it to you is because I'm a writer, and so I know that there are a few tropes that exist in the human imagination, a few kind of archetypal things. And one of those stories that we tell over and over is precisely these stories about the, the small but many up against the big but few. That's the Death Star and the Rebel Alliance, okay? And once you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. That was the same summer in Seattle. That 40-story drilling rig in the back belongs to Shell Oil. Shell had announced that they wanted to go up into the Arctic and pioneer oil drilling in the Arctic. Think about that for a minute. The scientists had told us that if we kept burning oil, the Arctic would melt, 
We kept burning oil. The Arctic melted. Did Shell look at that and think, huh, maybe we should go into some other business like solar panels? No. Shell looked at that and said, now that it's melted, it'll be easier to drill for more oil in the Arctic. That calls into question whether the big brain was a good evolutionary adaptation or not, you know. But happily, there were enough people with good brains and better hearts attached to them that conspired to get in the way. You see them there in their small craft. We, of course, called them kayaktivists. Um, And they did such damage to Shell's brand that by the end of the summer, Shell had called the whole thing off, said, we've spent $9 billion on this, but we cannot take these pictures, more or less. Um, um, And I confess my small attempt tonight is to do just a tiny bit of brand damage to the people who continue to do this kind of work um, because it's an important part of what we try to do. And I know that makes me a bad guest, and for that I apologize. Um, So this fight is where we're at now. And it's going to be, over the next four or five years, what determines whether we make change in the time we have or not. Can we build that new zeitgeist, that new sense of what's normal and natural and obvious? When it happens, it's an enormous moment, an enormous shift. We saw it happen in this country, say, around gay marriage. Um, There are people like me in this room old enough to remember when we didn't even talk about gay marriage because it obviously was never going to happen. It wasn't going to be a thing. And it was only six or seven years ago that people like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were still against it because it didn't poll well enough. But then activists did the amazing work of changing people's hearts and minds. And now, I mean, with the possible exception of Mike Pence, no one even bothers to, you know, contest it because it's, Incredibly obvious that if you love someone, you should be allowed to marry them. And that was a perfect example of the zeitgeist shifting fast. This is obviously harder. Nobody made trillions of dollars a year being a bigot, and people do make trillions of dollars a year peddling hydrocarbons to each other. But the principle's the same. Because it's a time test, I cannot guarantee you that we're going to win. In fact, I can guarantee you that there are going to be large losses or already have been. Um, But I can guarantee you that there's going to be a fight and you need to take as much of a role in that fight as you can. It's not the first time that human beings have ever had to fight something, you know. For our parents and grandparents, the existential question in the last century was fascism in Europe. And people had to go across the ocean and kill people and get killed in order to deal with that existential crisis. No one's asking us to do that. You don't have to go kill anyone. You have to, just the opposite, go and try and figure out how to help, you know. But... It demands that we move outside our comfort zone, and that'll mean something different for everyone. As I say, for me, it's meant this odd thing of becoming more of an activist than than I was temperamentally suited to be. I'm a writer. All writers are, in essence, introverts. You know, I like being here with you, but I'd rather be home typing. You know, that's what I like to do. 
But I've, I mean, I did not expect that I was going to routinely end up in handcuffs. I'm not telling you you need to, but you might. I remember writing the letter asking people to come to Washington for that first civil disobedience around the Keystone Pipeline. It's a hard letter to write to ask people to come get arrested. And one of the things I said in it, and looking out at the demographics of this room, I'm going to repeat it, one of the things I said in it was, I didn't think that young people in that case should have to be the cannon fodder. Young people are leading this fight all over the world, as you've seen, and as you can see tonight, looking at the steps of the DNC and whatever else. But if you're 22, an arrest record might not be the absolute best thing in the world for your future. Past a certain point, <laughs> what the hell are they going to do to you? Uh, you know, um, it was pleasure actually to watch people with hairlines like mine arriving. To we didn't ask people how old are you as they were getting arrested because that would be rude. But we did <laughs> cleverly, I think, say um, who was president when you were born, and the two biggest cohorts were from the FDR and the Truman administration. And the, the last day, there was a guy arrested with a sign around his neck that said, World War II vet, handle with care. He was old enough that he'd been born in the Warren Harding administration, which was long ago enough that I'd forgotten there was a Warren Harding administration. Um, it was great because the young people who were there saw their elders acting the way we need elders to act in civilizations. Okay, And so whatever... Whatever that means to you, take it on board as best you can and figure out how to act, figure out how to do something on September 20th and on the days that will follow. Figure out how to use what financial clout, what institutional clout, what political clout you have to make a difference. And the only thing I would just end by saying is do it fast. This is a... Solutions to the problem of climate change that occur in 2040 or 2060 or 2080 aren't solutions to the problem. We have a few years left to make big transformative difference, and it has to be on a scale that we haven't seen yet. So uh, I don't even know if that's an idea here to contribute to the Ideas Festival, but I, I know it at the just it's a, it, it's the deepest intuition I have after spending most of my life on this question. We need to act. We need to act hard and we need to act fast above all else. So thank you all for being part of that. Thank you all. Nice. Thank you all. It's kind. Thank you all. Now, I've talked on longer than I should have, which I'm afraid is what I, I told you I wasn't an orator. So, uh, um, but I left just enough time for a few questions. Let's uh, start uh, right here. Greg Hammer from Miami. We are never going to see the exodus of capital away from dirty energy. Without, while dirty energy gets to remain the cheapest. Yes. And so everybody agrees that that is the tipping point, the spark that gets us to the other goals that we want, whether it's Paris, GND, the stuff I'm working with with my, my XR friends, that's Extinction Rebellion down in Miami. Um, the goals are there. 
That's why we get out of bed. But if we don't get legislation, then we're not going to move the needle. And so I want to know why don't you spend more time telling people to support this particular legislation? So so I I really like – thank you for the question, and I really like Citizens Climate Lobby who's worked hard on this, and I've done my best to help over the years. Um, And I do think it's important to put a price on carbon. I think there's no, at this point, intellectual justification for not doing it. There's nothing else like it that we're just – I mean, you can't just go – I mean, if you have a restaurant in Aspen – you know, the cheapest way to deal with your trash at the end of the night would just be to go toss it out onto Monarch Street or whatever. But we don't do that because then we'd have rats and leptospirosis and everyone would go to Vail instead and it would be <laughs> sad, you know. Um, 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 I mean, civilization is people cleaning up after themselves unless you're an oil company and then you're just allowed to use the atmosphere as an open sewer. The only thing I would say about a price on carbon is that we're no longer at a point where it can be the only strategy that we do. It could have been 25 or 30 years ago, might well have sufficed, and it won't any longer. And the only thing that worries me a little bit about the negotiations, if they ever happen in our Congress, is that the price that may be required, asked to to for this may be too high, i.e., at various times the oil industry has said, ah, perhaps we'll take a modest price on carbon. In return, no liability for us about anything and no regulation from the EPA of carbon and so on and so forth. And these things are probably too high a price to ask because we desperately need – we basically need three tools at this point. A you know, price on carbon would be an important one, at least as important, maybe more important – probably more important is an all-out effort to to – underwrite and deploy renewable energy at a kind of World War II scale pace. And the third one that we're finally beginning to see some real traction on is a a real commitment to keeping carbon in the ground, to making it impossible to... It helps all those things, no question. But it won't do it by itself. And, and so it's very good to see things like, I mean, the best climate plan that we've seen so far, for instance, out of the presidential candidates came this week from Jay Inslee. And it does talk about a price on carbon, but it also talks about a whole suite of other things that happily a president could do without our dysfunctional Congress even getting in the way. So no more permits for drilling on public land in the United States, for instance, on and on and on. So it's a good part of what needs to happen. Just don't get fixated on it to the idea that it's the only thing because we need a lot of things. Good. Somerset Waters, could you talk a little bit about geoengineering? Yes. Geoengineering, I mean, it has many different permutations, but the most common, when people talk about it most commonly, what they talk about is some uh, industrial process of changing the atmosphere probably in such a way that you could artificially cool the planet. Having put a ton of carbon in the atmosphere, we'd now put a ton of sulfur in the atmosphere to block some. And it's a bad idea. It's a, um, it may turn out to be the kind of break the glass idea that some desperate, if we, if we just completely fail at the job that someone will have to do. But it's a terrible idea for a few reasons. One, well, one, it's just embarrassing. I mean, it's just, it's the kind of idea that junkies hit on, you know? Like, I'm not going to deal with my actual problem. I'm going to figure out some way of doing it. Two, it's, a, um, um, it's probably not going to work, at least 
not very well. The computer modeling demonstrates, for instance, that I mean, what you're basically doing is simulating a volcano. And in the past, when we've had really big volcanic eruptions, one of the things that that big infusion of uh, sulfur into the atmosphere has done is tended to move the monsoon off the Asian subcontinent. Um, so think about those people in Chennai with no water now, and then ex, you know, sort of try to figure out how you're going to get the nations of the world to agree on this geoengineering plan. The third reason is that it would do nothing at all about the sort of evil twin sister of global warming, which is ocean acidification. Um, um, even if carbon had no effect on the temperature whatsoever, we should be working incredibly hard to get off it because it's screwing up the chemistry of the oceans, which cover 70% of the planet and are the root of the biggest biological system on Earth. The fact that we've the ocean is 30% more acidic than it was a generation ago should be about as scary a thing as we have to fixate on. So for all those reasons, I think it'd be a lot smarter to build a lot of solar panels really fast. That would be my, my advice. Thank you so much for your presentation. I find it very instructive. Um, my question is, um, I was curious about your perspective especially having interacted with people from developing countries. You know, when we look at developing countries, there is that impetus for greater economic development. Mm. Mm. And how do we balance the need to literally have people lifted out of abject poverty, which requires affordable, reliable energy with, you know, this particular issue? Very, very, very important question. And, uh, And in some ways, this was the hard moral question around climate change, I think, 10 or 15 years ago. What happened was that, um, well, the engineers did their job. And now the price of a solar panel has reached the point where it allows people in the developing world to really realistically leapfrog over the fossil fuel age in a lot of places. A large part of this new book of mine was based on some reporting I did for The New Yorker in the most remote parts of Africa, uh, there's more than a billion people on the planet, as you know, without electricity right now. That is to say there are more people on planet Earth without electricity than there were the day that Edison invented the first light bulb. That tells you something about demography and about equity, both. Um, Most of them are in Africa, and the the World Bank estimated that the, estimates that there'll be more of them in 2050 than there are now. That in, in essence, there's no hope of building the grid out to most of that part of the world because it's too expensive. But that's not what's going to happen. In the last two or three years, there's been a just explosion of people putting up solar power in particular and, and doing it. And when you see it happening, then you get a sense of what a miracle this is. So for us... Not so much. The solar panel replaces some other thing. You know, it, we don't even really like looking at them all that much. It's just, you know, whatever. It's, we like them, but we don't, they're not that big a deal. If you're, I mean, I, I was sitting in a, with a bunch of elders in a town, little tiny town in the north of Ghana, near the equator. It's 95 degrees every day, hot all the time. So we're sitting there. We're talking about the solar microgrid they'd put in the week before for their community. And um, they kept, while we were talking, they kept handing me bottles of 
cold water to drink, for which I was very grateful because it was very hot. But it took me 15 minutes of sitting there in my clueless Western way to figure out why they were so proud to be. Until the week before, there had really never been anything cold in that place. you know. And now there was uh, that you can take a sheet of glass and point it at the sun and out the back comes cold and light and information and sort of modernity is a pretty remarkable thing. And that you can do it in ways that don't destroy the world around you. That's why the Chinese and the Indians in particular are the fastest adopters of renewable energy because they're understanding that, among other things, the fossil fuel boom is undermining their economies at this point. Their cities have become so close to unlivable, uh, unbreathable, Delhi, I don't know if anybody's been to India in the last few years. India is one of my favorite places in the world, but urban India as of the last three or four years is almost impossible much of the time to just even be in. I mean, there's five million children in Delhi. We think two and a half million have irreversible lung damage just from breathing the smog every day. So the, the long answer to that question, short answer to that question is we're at a happy moment for that there's a real possibility of allowing people to do the same thing that happened with telecommunications when we leapfrogged uh, 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 landline systems and went straight to cell phones. So let's hope. On a rational world, this is what we'd be doing. This is what we'd spend the next 20 years doing. The only task for the planet would be how many solar panels and how many wind turbines can we put up how fast in order to bring necessary development to people and in order to ward off the worst peril we've ever wandered into. And that at bottom is what all these fights are about. To the extent that we can stop the fossil fuel industry cold, then the pace at which we build out renewable energy will automatically increase dramatically. That's why it's such a battle, because they know that too, and that's why they work so hard to stop it. There's a question over there. We'll do one more question. Hello. Thanks for your time. Yes. My name is Paige Danzinger, founding director of Better World Museum. How can we transform people um, into creating more action when there's such an emotional um, feeling of helplessness and dissidence and actionlessness yep. and refusal to listen to smart people. I got it. Um, so it's a good and important question, and it really allows us to end on an uh, on a important place. First thing to be said is individual action by human beings is a very good thing, and it's very helpful to each of us to take actions in our own lives that, that work in the right direction. Even though, at this point, there's no way to make the math of climate change work one individual action at a time. One Prius at a time, one vegan dinner at a time, one whatever it is, they're all good things. My house is covered with solar panels. I'm proud of them, but I don't try to fool myself that that's how we're stopping climate change because we don't have time to do it that way. We have to take what people we can get, if we can get 4 or 5% of the population deeply engaged in movement building, then that's enough to, because apathy cuts both ways, you know. Um, 
It was hard to organize 400,000 people to show up in New York for a big climate march, but we didn't worry that the next day 400,000 people were going to show up for a pro-global warming march, you know? Um, um, so if we can get 4 or 5%. So the deeper question, the one you're asking, is how do you get people to not feel helpless? And that's always been the problem with climate change. It's so big and we feel so small that as individuals it seems unlikely that we can make a difference. And as I say, as individuals we sort of can't make a real difference, though we all should do those individual things. But movements are about assembling enough people to let all those people feel that they're making a plausible difference and therefore more people will be attracted to this fight. There's a kind of, uh, you know, uh, 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 I don't even know what it is, a sort of smoke and mirrors at first as the first people band together, you know, seven undergraduates at some college completely pathetically, hopelessly trying to organize the world, but then they make a little bit of difference and more people see it and begin to feel them. That's what movements are, and it's why they desperately need people engaging in them, not being cynical about them. And once that engagement has started, then over and over I find people feeling that suddenly they can actually emotionally cope better with the situation that they're in. Now that's why September 20th, say, it's really important for people to do this because it's not okay in any way to have seventh graders be responsible in the end for this crisis. It's wonderful that they're standing up, that they're taking the lead. But think about, among other things, the kind of emotional... It's hard enough being in junior high or high school to begin with, you know, and trying to feel at the same time like you have to save the world by yourself is, is impossible and wrong. And so it is, if for no other reason than that, incumbent on the rest of us to join in as best we can. So that's why go to 350.org, go to globalclimatestrike.net, figure out with your local, wherever you are, your local, how to get involved and how to get involved on as high a scale as you can. This is an audience and a conference of people with influence and power. If you have influence and power, use it now. There's no point in keeping your powder dry any longer because we're at the real hard spot. So thank you for your work and thank everyone for your work. And on we go. Bill McKibben founded 350.org, a grassroots climate campaign. He's a professor at Middlebury College. He's written more than a dozen books, including The End of Nature. His latest book is Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado in late June 2019. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. 
Thanks for joining me.